Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. The Peter Schiff Show. I am recording this podcast on Cyber Monday, uh, which follows the Black Friday uh, brick-and-mortar shopping day. Remember, Cyber Monday first got its name because uh, the e-commerce companies wanted to create their own version of Black Friday. So they came up with the Cyber Monday. But I think it's losing some of its significance given the fact that the online retailers are now so competitive with the brick-and-mortar Uh, guys when it comes to Black Friday deals that I would imagine that Cyber Monday isn't going to be as strong as people think because Black Friday was much stronger than people thought, at least when it comes to the online shopping world. I think we saw a much bigger than normal bump in the number of people who did their Black Friday shopping online versus uh in actual stores. But if you look at the entire uh, Black Friday, Thanksgiving Day, you know, blowout sale, the numbers were very disappointing. And that's not the way, you know, CNBC was spinning it here this morning. To hear them talk, everything was great because they're focusing on the big jump in online sales and ignoring the very significant decline in bricks and mortar. The online guys, they're saying we're up about 20% over the same period last year. But the brick and mortar sales were down about 10%, which is a huge number, especially when you figure that 75 to 80% of the holiday sales take place 
uh, the old-fashioned way at stores, not online. So sure, if you have a small percentage of total sales taking a 20% jump, but a gigantic percentage contracting by 10%, the net amount is a big decline in holiday uh, shopping. And of course, the retailers were positioned for a big increase. That's why they have all this inventory. And remember, we're comparing this year to last year. Last year was another weak holiday season. It, I think this one is going to be much weaker than last year. But last year was weaker than what everybody thought. I remember warning about the fact that I thought it would be a weak holiday sales season last year, and I ended up being right. It was uh, much weaker than what everybody had been anticipating. And the same thing is happening this time, except this year, I think it's going to be even weaker because I think the consumer is even in worse shape today than he was Christmas last year, even though supposedly more of them have jobs, more of them aren't even in the labor force. And more of them have part-time jobs instead of full-time jobs. And that's another year of running up debt. So even though gas prices are cheaper than they were a year ago, uh, healthcare prices are a lot more expensive. Uh, food prices are higher. There are a lot of things that cost more than they did a year ago. And a lot of people earn less than they did a year ago or don't earn anything at all. And they have more debt that they have to contend with. Uh, so the economy is in worse shape despite the claims by the Fed uh, to the contrary. And so I think you're going to have this very, very weak Christmas. And what we've seen so far from Thanksgiving and from uh, Black Friday confirms what I've been saying all along, that the inventory build was a mistake and that this is not going to be a good Christmas. In fact, a horrible Christmas for the retailers. And, you know, by the way, just because a lot of things were sold online doesn't mean they're not going to get returned. You know, I have a feeling that we're going to see a lot of returns uh, from the online shopping because if people bought, let's say, apparel, online as opposed to going to the store, right? There's probably a better chance that they're going to return what they bought because they're not going to like the way it looks on them or it's not going to fit, right? I mean, because you go into a store and you try things on in a dressing room and how many things do you try on to select what you want? I mean, when I go to a store, most of the things I take to the dressing room, they stay in the dressing room, right? I I don't buy them. Maybe I buy 10% of the things that I actually try on. And I think it's probably worse with women. I mean, women's, their, their bodies are a lot different and how they look in clothing is very different. And the sizes, you know, they, they don't, they're not always the same just because it's a label there. So a lot, usually you got to try stuff on to find something you like. And I bet what a lot of women are doing with their online shopping is they buy a bunch of things and they're going to keep some and they're going to return the rest because their returns are free. So we'll see how much people keep. In fact, I think overall, There's going to be more returns this year because I think when people get gifts that they don't want uh, and when they take them back, they're not going to exchange it for something else that they don't need. They're going to get the cash because they actually need that money. And so I think that, you know, you're going to see more returns uh, than you would normally see. But of course, the fact that so many people are shopping online, I think one of the reasons for that is people are trying to get the best deal. And for now, Uh, The online merchants are generally undercutting the brick and mortars uh, because, number one, most of these online retailers are still not charging sales tax. Uh, The shipping is free on most of them. Uh, So right there, if you have no sales tax and free shipping, 
uh, you know, you got a good deal. And then you've got these big behemoths like Amazon that still don't care about making a profit. So they're willing to really price aggressively because all they care about is the top line, not the bottom line. But most retailers care about the bottom line, right? I mean, that's, that's what they're in business for, to make a profit. They're not in business just to sell. Uh, but in the online world, you still have a lot of people trying to support stock prices, and the investors are more concerned about revenue, and they don't care about profit. So this keeps prices lower. And so if people are desperate, they're doing more of their shopping online and less of their shopping in actual stores. So again, I, sh- I see this as more of a sign that people are really shopping price, and they're doing that because uh, they're in bad shape. But I do think that when you know, the after Christmas sales come on and you have a lot of retailers that are caught with a lot of inventory that we might actually get more aggressive pricing uh, among the, you know, the brick and mortar uh, stores that are really trying to unload, uh, you know, what they were foolish enough to buy in the first place because they overestimated the strength of the U.S. consumer. Now, the question is, what, if anything, is the Federal Reserve going to do with this incoming data? You know, I did see one Forbes article uh, that mentioned that, well, the weak Black Friday sales caused the Fed not to raise rates because, you know, if the Fed was really data dependent, this should be very disappointing. After all, the Fed is looking to the consumer. I mean, the reason the Fed uh, is so worried about jobs is because they want consumers to have income so they can go spend. That's the whole reason they want people to get jobs so they can go spend their paychecks, right? Well, if the evidence is showing that uh, the consumer isn't spending, if that data is showing that the consumer is under stress, uh, why would the Fed be raising rates if it were data dependent? In fact, we got more data coming out this morning. We got the Chicago PMI, horrible number. Last month, we did get a bounce up to 56.2, uh, which turned out to be a dead cat bounce. They were expecting 54 this month or for the month of November. Instead, it crashed all the way back down to 48.7. Back in contraction mode, this is where the numbers are during a recession, right? Anything south of 50 shows a contraction, and and that's what we got uh, in the Chicago PMI. Uh, All of these PMIs have been coming out uh, weak. And again, if the Fed were, in fact, data dependent, all of the data that they supposedly depend on would argue for uh, a continuation of 0% interest rates, if not Uh, the relaunch of quantitative easing. If the Fed does, in fact, ignore all this weak economic data, and if it raises interest rates in December, it will prove that it never was data dependent, that it was simply stalling the entire time. And the reason that it raised rates, it wasn't because the data suggested that they should raise rates. Uh, It's because they felt that they had backed themselves into a corner because the conventional wisdom now is that if the Fed doesn't raise rates, they're going to lose all their credibility. And if the Fed actually believes that, that, that their credibility is on the line, then that may be a reason to raise rates, even though they prefer not to raise them at all. But again, we still have quite a bit of data that's going to come out. Uh, between now and that December meeting, including the non-farm payroll number that comes out at the end of this week on Friday. That is going to be the last non-farm payroll number that we get before the Fed decision. So that one may actually be the most important jobs number ever. (laughs) And remember, we say that every month, but this time maybe they, they will mean it. You know, I saw a former Fed governor, uh, was it was a a Bush economic advisor, Lawrence Lindsay, 
uh, was on CNBC again, and he's been saying some good stuff recently. And again, he was pointing out that we are in another bubble, that the Federal Reserve created uh, the housing bubble and the NASDAQ bubble, and that now we have another bubble, which is not being identified by name. But, you know, I think it's the biggest bubble yet. I think it's bigger than the other two combined. But Lindsay pointed out correctly that we've been obsessed with inflation as it's measured by the CPI. And we have overlooked the effects of inflation on asset prices. He called it asset price inflation. But he said that this party is going to end badly. He said that the Fed uh, is made, has made a mistake, that it should be thinking long term instead it thinks short term. And so it pursues policies that make us feel good in the short run, but that produce a hangover in the long run, basically saying all of the right things. And then Joe Kernan, you know, in their conversation, Joe Kernan interrupts him. We well, didn't really interrupt him, but Joe, Joe Kernan points out, hey, but there's no evidence that it's going to end badly this time, you know, which is probably one of the dumbest comments uh, that you could make. I mean, because number one, you don't need evidence that a bubble is going to end badly because all bubbles end badly. If you if you accept the fact that we're in a bubble, uh, you don't have to wait for evidence that it's going to end badly or that it's going to pop because there's never been a bubble that hasn't popped. There's never been a situation where you've had this artificial stimulus and you've created this party where it ended well. If you get drunk, it's going to end with a hangover, right? That that's it, it's always the same. Yet what Joe Kernan is saying is is this time it's different. But the other thing is when you say there's no evidence, there is evidence. You don't even need it. I mean, evidence is history, number one, right? But putting that aside, there is mountains of evidence that this is going to end badly. But that's the evidence that everybody ignores. Just like there was mountains of evidence that the housing bubble was going to end badly or the internet bubble. All the evidence is there. It's just that nobody sees it. Everybody is oblivious to that evidence until after the bubble pops. And then in hindsight, everybody can see it. And then anybody like me who is warning about it, well, then you just get labeled the stop clock. Also want to point out, I, was, I read this uh, article today in the Wall Street Journal uh, about uh, the euro and the dollar and the trajectory of monetary policy and, of course, why the dollar is going to keep on strengthening and the euro is going to keep on falling. And the article predicted that the Federal Reserve was going to continue to raise interest rates, right, that this was going to be a divergence in policy. The ECB was going to keep easing. It was going to ratchet rates down further into negative territory. And the Fed was going to keep raising so that interest rates in the U.S. would be at 2.75 percent uh, by early 2018, and that at the same time, the ECB will still have interest rates negative. In fact, at the same point, they will still be at their lows, that the ECB will still have interest rates at the absolute low in 2018, and they wouldn't have raised them at all. I mean, they won't be less negative than they are now. They'll be as negative or even more negative. So the ECB is going to keep easing until uh, early 2018, and the Fed is going to keep tightening until then. How do they know? <laughs> How do they know that? You're talking about two and a half years or not quite two, two and a half years into the future, and they're saying what the interest rate is going to be. But of course, if this is the case, if the Fed is going to raise interest rates up to 2.75% between now and early 2018, that also means that there's not going to be a recession at all 
between now and 2018. Because obviously, if there was a recession, the Fed would have to lower rates back down to zero. So to assume that rates are going to be at 2.75% in early 2018 assumes the U.S. economy continues to grow uh, between now and then, which would probably make this the longest ever economic recovery in the history of the United States. Now, why would you want to go on a limb and bet that the weakest recovery in history is going to be the longest lasting recovery in history. That makes no sense, especially if the weakest recovery in history required the biggest dose of monetary stimulus in history to produce it. Because if you take away all that monetary stimulus, then this recovery should wither faster than lesser recoveries or rather stronger recoveries, which have withered after a smaller dose of stimulus was removed. So since this recovery was so weak, and required so much stimulus, you would think that it wouldn't last as long as most uh, that required less stimulus or that were stronger. Yet here you have the Wall Street Journal assuming that this is going to be the longest recovery ever. And they also assume that there is going to be no positive response in Europe to all this monetary policy. Positive in a sense that it makes inflation go up, which wouldn't be a positive for the European economy, but it would be you know, a positive in that Inflation would go up, which is their goal. But if inflation were to pop up, they'd have to raise rates, right? I mean, they have to keep inflation below 2% in Europe. So the the Wall Street Journal is saying that despite all this negative interest rates and money printing, inflation is going to stay well below 2% in the Eurozone all the way through uh, early 2018. Or you're also saying that Eurozone is going to stay in recession, that the European economy is not going to respond positively to any of this medicine, which they agree is great, right? Every, the Wall Street Journal says this is great for Europe. All this stimulus is going to help the European economy. Well, apparently not, because if they're still at negative rates over two years from now, it doesn't that mean it didn't work if they haven't been able to turn it off, right? That, that they have no positive. So the whole thing doesn't make any sense. But again, the argument here is that, well, the dollar is going to go up and the euro is going to go down because the Fed's going to keep tightening for years and Europe is going to keep easing. And again, that is in the market. Everybody already believes this nonsense. And I think this is already priced in to a large effect in the exchange rate between the dollar euro. That's why the dollar euro is 105, 106. And that's why gold prices are as low as they are, which brings me to gold. Because Black Friday was black and blue Friday in the gold pits. I mean, that's where the best Black Friday markdowns were. Uh, at the COMEX, because you had a real Black Friday beatdown of gold. Gold was down about 15 bucks. It's probably the biggest decline I can remember on a Black Friday. I mean, maybe there was another Black Friday where gold dropped uh, by 15 bucks. I, I can't remember. Uh, but maybe this was uh, the, the, the biggest decline on a Black Friday. I think the low that I saw for gold was 1052, 1052, 1053. It was a new six year low. The only positive thing from a technical perspective was that gold stocks did not make a new low. And in fact, gold stocks are up about 2% today, even though the price of gold is only bouncing back about five bucks, which is about one third of what it's lost. And and gold stocks were not down that much on Friday either. Uh, And so this is a positive technical divergence. The fact that we have seen new lows in gold, uh, but we haven't seen a confirmation Uh, in the gold stocks. I mean, gold stocks were leading the gold market down 
And there's a good reason to believe that gold stocks may lead the market up. So gold stocks were anticipating the big drop in gold. And maybe the fact that gold stocks are not making new lows is showing that it is it is anticipating a rise in the price of gold, which I think will happen after we get the December uh, meeting. And I've already spoken about that on previous podcasts. I think either way, it's a positive for gold. Either it's a buy the rumor, sell the fact or uh, there is no fact to sell because it's all rumor and the rumors were false and the Fed doesn't raise rates. But either way, based on the sentiments expressed in the Wall Street Journal and everything else, it's already factored in. In fact, you know, I pointed this out, all of this easy money talk, it's so ironic because the European Central Bank is talking about, hey, we want more inflation and we're going to do whatever it takes to create inflation. And we're going to have negative interest rates, uh, and you've got that same situation going on in Japan and even in the Fed. Even if we do raise interest rates, we're talking about raising them from zero to slightly less than zero. This is very bullish for gold. But the problem is when the ECB is more dovish than the Fed, right? And they say the Fed is hawkish. It's not hawkish. It's only hawkish when you compare what it's saying to what the Fed is, to what the ECB is saying. When you look at what the Fed is doing, they're all doves raising interest rates. Uh, by a quarter of a point, is dovish. It's just less dovish than what the ECB is talking about, right? So in terms of central bank rhetoric, you've got the ECB talking about weaker policy than the Fed is talking about. And so on a relative basis, that makes the dollar relatively more attractive than the euro if all you're looking at is rate differentials and, and monetary policy. And because the the ECB rhetoric is weakening the euro, it's strengthening the dollar. And because the dollar is going up, everybody wants to sell gold because that's the trade. It's like a Pavlovian reflex, dollar up, gold down. So when the ECB is debasing the euro, somehow that's bad for gold because on a relative basis, that makes the dollar look better. But that's not true. Inflation in Europe is good for gold. Inflation in Japan is good for gold. So is inflation in the United States. And it doesn't matter if we are inflating less than the Europeans, it's still inflation. Because even if the dollar is rising relative to a sinking euro, it's still losing purchasing power. If you just look at the buying power of the dollar, forget about how many euros it buys and look about look at what you buy as far as goods and services in the United States, the dollar is losing value. So just because it's losing value more slowly than the euro doesn't mean it's losing value and it doesn't mean the price of gold should fall. Look, let's say the euro were to lose 90% of its value and the dollar were to lose 80% of its value. If that was what was going on, the dollar would double in value against the euro in an environment where the dollar lost 80% of its value and the euro lost 90% of its value. Now, according to the, today's logic, gold prices should fall because the dollar would double against the euro. So the price of gold should go down. No, the price of gold should skyrocket. It should go up 1,000% in terms of euros and 500% in terms of dollars, right? It's still way up big. It would be up more in euros than it would in dollars, but it would still be way up. So you can't just look at the relative exchange rate. You have to look at what's absolutely happening to fiat currencies, and they are all being debased. In fact, if you just look at the fundamentals in the U.S. economy, you got M2 growing at 6% a year. Against GDP, even if you believe the U.S. government's numbers, the GDP is growing at 2% a year. So the money supply is growing three times the GDP. That is about as inflationary a monetary policy as we've ever had. 
Look at uh, interest rates. They're negative. Even if the Fed raises interest rates, they'll still be below the official rate of inflation. Forget about the actual rate. They're still going to be below the efficient rate. So you have uh, money supply growth. You have negative interest rates. And what about the fiscal situation? Well, we just blew the doors off of the the deficit. We obliterated the debt ceiling. We didn't just raise it. uh, We suspended it. So the sky's the limit. Nobody even talks about making any cuts now in government spending. So government spending is going off the charts. Uh, Deficits are going to explode. We've had no title reform. We have lots of money printing. We have negative interest rates. This is an extremely bullish environment for gold. Throw in the fact that they're they're printing a lot of money in Japan. They're printing a lot of money in Europe. This should be a perfect storm for gold. Yet gold is not rising because everybody is simply looking at the dollar versus the euro. And since the euro happens to be weaker than the dollar now, well, then nobody wants to buy gold. But this can't go on forever. At some point, the dollar is going to be weaker than the euro. I'm not saying the euro is going to be strong. It's just going to be less weak than the dollar, right? And that's when the gold price is really going to take off because something is going to happen in the next few months or few years that is going to cause the Europeans to raise rates because I believe that inflation will pick above 2% the way they measure it in Europe, and they are going to have to slam on the brakes. On the other hand, U.S. growth is going to falter. The economy is going to sink back down into a recession, and the Fed is going to lower rates back to zero, assuming they've ever lifted them from zero. And we're going to do QE4. We're going to be easier than the ECB. And that's what the markets are not anticipating. And in that environment, where all currencies are losing value, but the dollar is losing value the fastest, That's going to be the best possible environment for gold. And to me, this looks a lot like the the 1960s in that the price of gold was fixed at thirty five dollars an ounce uh, all the way until 1971. And, you know, when Nixon took us off the gold standard in a couple of years before that, he tried to tweak uh, and he devalued the dollar slightly, and he took the official price of gold up from 35 to 38 and then to 42 and change. And, and that's where it is today. Officially, the gold in Fort Knox, assuming it's still there, is valued at $42, I think at 22 cents or something like that, per ounce. That is the official uh, price of gold. But the price of gold remained very constant uh, do, during the, uh, the Lyndon Johnson era. And it was that era of, you know, guns and butter, uh, the Vietnam War, the Great Society programs, where we originally, you know, blew the doors off the, the budget. We had big budget deficits. We were printing a lot of money. It was the easiest monetary policy we had ever had in the United States, you know, present time excluded because, you know, this was the 1960s. And, and so initially the price of gold didn't go up. And the reason for that was that, well, there was some artificial intervention. The government had an official price of gold, and the U.S. government says, look, we're going to sell gold at $35 an ounce. No matter how much money we print, no matter how big the deficits are, we're going to sell it for $35 an ounce. And and there was a lot of demand for gold at that time uh, in the physical world. People were still buying gold, not, not, not so much Americans because it was illegal, uh, but foreigners were buying, you know, Charles de Gaulle of France very famously was buying a lot of gold for the French. And, of course, Americans were still using gold. They were using gold in, in jewelry. I remember my, an uncle of mine had a gold plating business, and he ended up going bankrupt. But what he used to do is he plated uh, silverware, gold, and his business was booming. A lot of people wanted gold-plated silverware because the gold was artificially cheap. 
That's why they could, you know, that, and that's why his business was so good because everybody wanted to plate everything in gold because the price of gold was the only price that wasn't going up. All the other prices were starting to rise, uh, but uh, the Fed was keeping or the government was keeping the price of gold down. But eventually, when Nixon closed the gold window and the artificial constraints were removed, right, the price of gold skyrocketed. It went from you know forty-two dollars an ounce to eight hundred and fifty. So I think something similar is happening now. Not that the government has a has a, a fixed exchange rate, right, to go, the dollar to gold, but you do have some artificial factors that are inhibiting the price of gold. You have the Federal Reserve and its rhetoric and it's talking up the dollar, right? Uh, talking about tightening and all this. You've got all the other foreign central banks and what they're doing. You have all the speculators who are shorting gold and selling gold futures. To me, this is all artificial, right? It's all about governments and central banks and speculators uh, with a particular agenda. Uh, and then you have the real market. You have the physical gold market, which is booming. There is tremendous physical demand growing around the world for gold and silver, just the way physical demand was growing in the 1960s and 1970s, uh, early 1970s, that was being restrained, right? You didn't see it in the price. People were still buying it, even though the price wasn't really moving. And that's what you're having now, although the price is actually falling, but you still have in the physical world, you have a lot of people who can see uh, or can read the writing on the wall, this is an extremely inflationary environment that we're in. This is extremely bullish for gold, just like everything that was done uh, under Lyndon Johnson. All of that was very bullish for gold, yet it didn't manifest itself until years later. You just had to understand uh, the consequences of what the Fed was doing. You know, I talked a lot recently about my father who passed away. Um, one of the things that that, that he did was that he recognized this early. And he was collecting silver coins in the 1960s. You know, up until 1965, all of our coins, dimes, uh, quarters, 50-cent pieces, and dollars, those coins were made of silver. And in 1965, that all changed because silver prices were getting too expensive because of the inflation. And so the government began making our coins out of copper-plated nickel. And, and so what they did is they took copper and they plated it with nickel to make it look like silver, but it still wasn't silver. And then they even made little ridge marks on the sides. And, you know, the reason that there's ridge marks on dimes and quarters, and there's no ridge marks, by the way, if you look at a penny or you look at a nickel, the sides are smooth. But if you look at a dime or a quarter, the sides have ridges. And if you want to know why that's the case, it's because dimes and quarters used to be made out of silver and silver was very valuable. And so you, the way you would know if your dime or your quarter had the required amount of silver is you would look at the, 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 the edges. And if the edges seem to be filed down, then you wouldn't accept the coin because it wouldn't have the legal required amount of silver, right? Because people could shave it off. But pennies were made of copper and nickels were made of nickel. And since those base metals were not that valuable, Nobody would bother to clip a penny. Who's going to shave copper off of a penny? Nobody cares, right? Didn't really matter how much copper was in a penny. I mean, it was a penny, right? And so they didn't go to the added expense of putting in those, those ridges. But once the government started making dimes and quarters out of copper and nickel, then why did they need ridges? Because it's the same nonsense. It was to give the appearance of what they used to be. That's why my father said it was counterfeit. Because the new quarters that were made of copper, copper clads, right, 
they were made to look like the old quarters because they took a little bit of nickel to change the color of the copper and they put the ridges. Really what they were is big pennies, but they were really uh, counterfeits. But here's, here's what my dad did. So when they introduced the, the copper coins into circulation, they didn't withdraw the old ones pre-1965. They were still in circulation. And so what my father was doing in the late 1960s, early 1970s, is he was going into stores and going into banks collecting the coins. And he would, you know, get change and he would take out the pre-65s. And he, you know, he'd keep getting, he would keep, you know, keep and bring the old, the ones back to the bank that were new, right? And keep, keep doing this. He'd keep taking bills to the banks and, and taking out change and then recycling the change until eventually he amassed 10 bags of silver coins. Each bag had a thousand dollars face. So my dad, my father had $10,000 worth of dimes, uh, quarters, and 50 cent pieces, $10,000 worth. In, and he kept it in a bank, right? He kept it at like a vault in a bank. And people used to make fun of my father. They say, Erwin, what are you doing? Why? Because my father didn't earn any interest, right? He was giving up interest. Why do you have $10,000 in the bank earning no interest, right? Everybody else kept their money in, in paper in the bank, and they would get whatever the interest rates were, 3 4%, I don't, I don't know what the passbook savings rates were back then. But my father was foregoing that, and he was actually paying money for the bank to store his silver coins. And $10,000 was a lot of money back then, back in uh, the mid-1960s. I mean, I think a, a medium home was about $20,000 back then. Today, it's about, what, 300000 So he had half a house, right, the equivalent of $150,000 in silver coins sitting in a bank. I mean, imagine just keeping, you know, all that money in, in quarters and, and dimes, right, in the bank. Also, the Dow Jones was... You know, what was it? Back then it was around, you know, it got to 1,000 in 1966. That was the peak. Now it's what, you know, not quite twice, twice that yet. It's not 20,000 yet, but what, 17, 18,000. So again, about the same amount of money in a relative terms, maybe a little bit more relative to uh, the stock market than, than the real estate market. But it was a lot of money, 150,000 you know, dollars worth of, of, of silver. And of course, people thought my dad was completely foolish. But by 1980, those bags of silver that my dad was buying for $1,000 a bag were worth more than $30,000 each. I think $35,000 was the top price that they were going for. 35 times what my, what my father was paying for those, for those bags of silver when people thought he was nuts for doing it. But he wasn't nuts. He understood the problems. And it took years for the problems to unfold. But so what? I mean, my, those coins, those silver coins did a lot better. Look, as I said, the Dow was at 1,000 in 1966. In 1980, it was still under 1,000. So the stock market went nowhere over a 15-year period where those silver coins went up 35-fold in value. So this is where I'm saying that you've got to be patient when you spot something that other people don't spot. And believe me, you know, it takes a long time. My father tells me about people would laugh, literally laugh, what he was doing because it seems so stupid at the time to so many people so my father was some kind of kook now you know the problem was my father actually didn't own those uh silver coins long enough to profit from them that's the sad truth what happened was my father got mixed up with this con man who had a gold mine and and so he convinced my father to invest in his gold mine and 
my father sold or spent rather. He didn't make a profit. He actually took those silver coins and used them for face value, right? He took his $10,000 that he had in silver coins and invested it in what he thought was a gold mine. And it turned out to be a Ponzi scheme, right? He was investing with a mini Bernie Madoff on a much smaller scale. And so my father ended up losing a lot of money. He didn't profit from his forecast at all, even though he had the right idea. And unfortunately, my father, who was in the insurance business, had also gotten into the investment business, and he got some of his clients to invest alongside of him in this con. And when it, it turned out to be a Ponzi scheme, not only did my father lose his money, but he felt so badly about having gotten his clients involved that he paid all his clients back out of his own pocket. Uh, so he, you know, he gave them back their money and he lost his own money. So it was a very unfortunate situation where my father didn't really profit at all uh, from having the foresight to have made these predictions, these forecasts, but he did act on it, but he just didn't uh, stick out the trade. He didn't stay in his trade long enough to see it through uh, fruition, which is something that's unfortunate because, you know, we have a number of our clients, my clients at Europe Pacific Capital who have recently decided to close their accounts or cash out their accounts uh, because they're discouraged. They say, you know, Peter, we believe what you're saying, but, you know, it's been so many years and the dollar keeps rising uh, and we're missing out. And so we're just closing our accounts and we're, you know, going to buy U.S. stocks. And I think that is a big mistake. Uh, and, you know, I feel badly. Fortunately, the vast majority of our clients are not making that mistake. Uh, but the fact that it's taking longer to play out is a reason. Now, my father, again, it wasn't that he gave up on his idea. He just got conned into, into a gold mine. So it was the same strategy. He just turned his silver into what he thought was gold. But it's the same principle in that you can see something early. And if you're not there for the payoff, for whatever the reason is, right, you can, you can, you can, you can have all the right bets in place. You can see everything coming. And if you see it too soon... And, and then you get discouraged and you go off in a different direction, then you miss out. And the key is to be able to uh, have the courage of your convictions, but for the long run, to stick it out in the face of adversity. And history shows that that is, is, is the way to go. Oh, I'll buy, by the way, too, while I'm talking about my dad, I want to remind everybody that I'm still selling his books at shiftbooks.com, S-C-H-I-F-F books.com. The biggest con is uh, his economic book. Remember, I do have some extra copies. You got to allow a little bit longer for delivery because the only reason I have more biggest cons is because I found a, a friend of my father's who happened to have boxes. He had bought them directly from my dad as well. And, uh, and so they're still boxed up. And he had some copies of the biggest con that I didn't know were around. And uh, also some copies of, the, of, the, of the, the Great Income Tax Hoax, which were two books that I had sold out of. And now we're back in limited stock of both of those books, uh, as well as the, the, the few books that I have of the Social Security Swindle. We may, be, we may be out of those. I'm not really sure. But the Social Security Swindle is another one of my dad's books. I still have the, the hardcover. That's the only, that book never came out in softcover. It's just in, in hardcover. And I have some of those. And we have the trade paperback uh, versions of the, uh, the Federal Mafia which is uh, my father's book that was banned. His last book, 2003, it's the third edition. It is the edition that was officially banned and, again, is one of only two books ever to be banned in the U.S. and the only nonfiction book to ever be banned. Now, the reason, somebody said, how can I sell the book if it was banned? The ban only applied to my father. My father was banned from selling the book. Anybody else could sell it, but my father couldn't, which meant he couldn't print them unless he was prepared to give them away. Uh, and so my father did stop printing them uh, after they were banned, but 
those that had already been printed are still around and other people were able to sell them and they are selling them and you can still find them for, for sale on Amazon. They're just selling them for a lot more money than I do. But again, the books are available while they last at shiftbooks, S-C-H-I-F-F books.com. There's so much factually incorrect information and underreporting by legacy media today. Shouldn't there be truth in media? Well, there is truth in media. Recently, a novel thought is now a reality with truthinmedia.com. Led by award-winning journalist Ben Swan, truthinmedia.com is the source for uninfluenced, reliable, fearless news where journalists pursue real questions, not conspiracies. Make truthinmedia.com your default browser's homepage today and get breaking news and commentary that speaks the truth to power. It's also where you can tune into the Peter Schiff Show every week. Visit truthinmedia.com today. That's truthinmedia.com. Access the Truth in Media RS feed by visiting truthinmedia.com forward slash feed. Attention listeners, I have an urgent message for you. We're in the middle of a war. The global conflict is destroying the lives of millions without a single bomb being dropped. It's called the International Currency War, and your bank account has been drafted to fight. The victims in this conflict are our currencies, the dollar, the euro, the yen, the pound. They're all heading to zero as irresponsible central banks compete to see who can print the most the fastest. But there's one form of money politicians and central banks can't destroy, gold. Today, it's more important than ever to understand the value of gold in your portfolio and to keep a close eye on major market developments. Subscribe to my monthly video cast and you'll be the first to hear my latest analysis on gold investing and the currency wars. Visit goldvideocast.com right now to subscribe for free. I call the dot-com bust, then the housing bust, and I advise clients to diversify into foreign equities and hard assets while the rest of Wall Street laughed at me. Now I want to keep you up to date on the next crisis that is brewing. My gold video cast also includes personal interviews I've conducted with other contrarian investors like Jim Rickards and Axel Merck. Gold has gone up 256% since 2003, but it has a lot further to go. Don't miss the rally. You can prosper during this time of currency wars, but only if you stay educated. Get a free subscription to my gold video cast at goldvideocast.com. That's goldvideocast.com.